from Kurtco Media. I think Shelby's story should be told because it is unique. I wound up doing a lot of things there I could tell you stories about, but I don't think you got ears big enough to hold it all. <laughs> that was the voice of Ted Sutton, one of our guests today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome to a special conversation today with two guests that I've been looking forward to getting on this show for a long, long time. Jim Marietta and Ted Sutton. Welcome, both of you. We're happy to be here. And it would not be a complete introduction without saying that Jim and Ted are with the original Venice crew. And I'm going to hand it over to you to tell our audience who are the original Venice crew. The original Venice crew, I came up with that thought because I know that Shelby moved, well, we moved our shop to the airport in 65. The atmosphere at the airport was not nearly as congenial, if you will, as in Venice. In Venice, we only had about 10,000 square feet, and that's where they built the original Daytona Coupe, the original 427 Cobra, both of which Ted was involved in, the original GT350 competition model that recently sold for $3.85 million. We're all jammed in that 10,000 square feet, and there was a certain camaraderie about being in that close and working with all the guys. And Carol always felt that Venice was a very special place. I think he wished that he had kept the race team at 1042 Princeton and just moved the rest of it over to the airport. So based on talking to Carol just a few years before he passed away about these kind of things is how I kind of came up with the idea of the original Venice crew. There was only 40 or 50 of us, but yet we, mostly they, not me, so to speak, but accomplished world championships and making iconic cars that have lasted now 50 plus years. And we were excited when they made a movie about some of the things we did. That's why I came up with the idea, Original Venice Crew, because that's kind of in 62 is where it started, which, as you know, because you're a historian on cars, was the old Lance Reventlo shop where Lance did a lot of great things as well. So apparently that address, 1042 Princeton, has a lot of great karma that goes with it. Boy, it sure did a lot of great cars. I mean, Jim, you're being pretty modest there when you talk about, you throw those names around like 427 Cobra and Daytona Coupe and 350R as if they're just kind of, oh, we built little this and built little that. But these are really some of the greatest competition cars in the history of motorsport. So the original Venice crew is not just a few guys who got back together to celebrate those original years. It's actually a company that's bringing some of these cars back to life. Jim, I know you and I met back around 2017 when you came to visit my studio and we talked about your new project at the time. I had a 65 Shelby GT350, so I was very interested when I learned that the closest thing to an original gt 350 the race version, was being built by the very guys who worked on the originals. That's you and Ted and Peter Brock. And I mean, it's kind of hard to believe that all this stuff comes back together. And it's not just like a high school reunion. It's like a high school reunion where everybody's 17 years old again. So with that car, 
you guys decided to go into business. What actually inspired you to start the company? It was the feeling of accomplishment and camaraderie that we had back at the old shop. We got paid for working there eight or 10 hours, depending on what the situation was. And then some of us would go out to eat at a close by restaurant. And if we didn't have anything to do, we'd go back and work at the shop for free or hang out with the guys. I mean, the shop was almost open 24 hours a day and they ran the dyno at night and people were working on various things. And it was a great place to work. And to the extent that I thought we could at least achieve a little bit of that some 50 years later, I thought that I'd give it a try. We ended up actually building our first car at Peter Brock's shop in Henderson, Nevada. And so it was Ted and I and Peter And then we also talked to Jerry Schwartz and Cantwell and another guy who doesn't get very much recognition by the name of Dick Linz, who was one of the engineers that worked with Chuck. Chuck Cantwell, that's right. We tried to get as many people involved as possible and kind of recreate that. And I think to a degree, we achieved it on some scale. I would have liked to have done more, but everybody has moved on in life and they have other things to do. But we took time to put those cars together and they became cars that people wanted to see and ride in. And so we went to a number of events and that it kind of got rolling that way. So that car you're talking about is the original Venice Crew GT350 CM, I guess competition Mustang. Yeah, competition model was the old name. Yeah. Before we talk about that car, let's relive some history with you and Ted and just kind of put our listeners in that very special place. You talk about 1042 Princeton. I don't know what it is now, a shoe factory or something like that? Or yeah, I think it's a warehouse, <laughs> a shoe warehouse of some sort. There we go. Well, back then it was definitely the mecca for all things motorsport. When did you guys start working for Carroll Shelby? Let's start from the top, Ted. You were there from the very beginning. I wasn't there from the very beginning. The Lance Reventlow Glow had been captured by Shelby and had Phil Remington as the head engineer and a lot of the other people. It come off of Indianapolis cars that were in the area had been built. The Scarab skeleton crew that was left behind put Shelby in a very good way to get started. We had a lot of nice things, a dyno and a lot of nice fabrication equipment, and he was able to utilize that to a very good degree. One of the things that Jim, not to besmirch him, he left out the Sunbeam Tiger was also developed there. That's where it originated in the back room. That's right. That thing happened almost overnight, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, and the fellow by the name of George Boskoff, who's now deceased, was the main designer and fabricator on it. So all these people had talent just weeping out of their arms and hands, you know, so it made it very easy. So you started there about 1962, would that be right? Well, I think it was 63, and I had a rather interesting way I got caught up in it. I was a booger-nosed kid that came out (laughs) of the Midwest that just graduated from high school and came out because of health reasons. I had poor health because of asthma. And so when I got out there, I didn't have any friends. And eventually I had to make some. And eventually I made friends with a guy that had a a Willie's Coop, a 41 Willie's Coop. There was a drag race team called Stonewoods and Cook at the time that made that car very popular. Yeah, they became very popular drag cars, yeah. And he said he wanted to make it into a gasser. And I said, well, when are you going to start? I said, well, when I get time. I said, what time do you need? He said, well, I work for the post office. I don't have enough money. Anyhow, long story short, I went over and took that car over to my mom and dad's house. I'm still just out of high school. And I melted it into a pretty nice bright red B gasser with a shiny aluminum 
10% setback a firewall and everything. And then his cousin came over and said, I've got an Austin Healey 3000 and I want to put this engine in it. It's over at the Ford dealer. Do you know anybody that could do it? And of course he recommended me. And then we went over there and looked at it and it was exactly the same thing that Shelby has sent in his warehouse ready to put into the Cobras. And so I put that engine in that car and I, there was a couple of pieces. I didn't know how to hook a hydraulic clutch up. I'd only done the stuff with linkage. So I went to Shelby's and asked them if I could buy some of their parts. They stumbled around about it and told me, well, maybe, but they didn't know how to convert pound sterling into Yankee money. <laughs> One thing led another. They said, will you please bring it back and show us? So when I brought it back and showed it to him, Phil Remington stepped out, looked at it, and he asked me, he said, well, where do you work now? And I told him, I said, well, I'm working on this. This is my project during the winter months. And he said, could you come to work here? Oh, I said, well, I, it took me two hours to get here. I said, I don't see how I could ever get here. Well, he said, you can ride with another fellow that lives in Anaheim. And as long, and so I got the job. This guy impressed me very much because he looked like he was serious business. He was a very handsome man and he was very driven looking. I learned later on, except for my very own father, I learned to practically worship the ground he walked on because he was good. And I just liked the way he went about things. So Phil Remington, Shelby always pats him on the back and says, this is a guy that made the place work. And I, and I totally agree with that. But Peter Brock came along. He worked at so many different things. And I just wondered, how could this young guy do all this stuff? And the result, they built the chassis and built a model of the Cobra Daytona Coupe. And so many people did not like it back in the day. Picture that beautiful car, people not liking it because the back end is sawed off. And a teardrop doesn't have a sawed off teardrop. Anyhow, they thought it wouldn't go. And Phil was one of them. And that's one of the only places I can see where he was really wrong about something. That's right. I guess there were a few iterations of that Daytona Coupe in terms of design. but Oh, yeah. There was a lot of people that I had learned to seek their help when I needed some. I valued whatever they felt about something pretty highly. I'm telling you, Peter Brock not only did that, but he went around and took a lot of photos. There was another guy there that took a lot of photos too. His name was Dave Friedman. And I never knew what he was supposed to do, but I guess he was supposed to be the photographer. But Peter did a lot of things around there too. Jim, you joined a little bit later, but not a whole lot later. Well, I joined in 64. I mean, much to my parents' consternation, I ended up quitting high school in 10th grade. <laughs> so I was working in automotive shops. And so I had plenty of free money because I was still living at home. And so I was so enamored with what Shelby was doing, I would look to see where they were going to be racing. And so I would either drive or fly to the races. And I did that two or three times. And finally, Al Dowd, who was one of the top three guys at the time, said, where Where do you live? You're at all the races. And I told him, well, I live in Ohio. And he said, well, what are you doing here all the time? And I said, well, I want to go to work for you guys. So he said, well, what do you know? And I said, well, you know, my dad has some classic cars. We had a Cord and an Auburn and an Airflow DeSoto and a Big Packard. And I said, well, I work on those cars. And then I work at a regular shop during the day. So he said, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm not going to pay you to get here. But if you get to the races that you, you can sign in on our ticket so you don't have to jump the fences anymore to get into the paddock, you get a pit pass from us. And we'll find you a place to sleep and uh, we'll feed you. 
He said, are you interested in that? And I said, absolutely, I am. So he said, oh, one more thing. He says, uh, we're not going to pay you. So I said, well, that's all right, too. So I started going then to the rest of the races in 64. So I was basic technically on the travel team for a number of the races through the summer and fall of 64. Kind of a unique part of that was that back in the day, I would fly from like Ohio to Kansas or Ohio to to California. And my mom or dad would go to the airport to Hertz and they would sign the contract at the Cleveland airport. And I would pick up the car at LAX. I was only 17. I knew at the time that if I ever damaged one of those cars, that deal was off. So I was very careful, but that was kind of some of the unique things you could do in 64, where today they would just laugh at you if you mentioned That's right. some teenager renting a car, signing at it in one airport and pinging it up at the other. That's how I worked for them in 64. And then the last race, who I believe was the LA Times Grand Prix. So I was working at that race and Al said, hey, we're going to hire a bunch of guys. Are you interested in moving to California? And I said, absolutely. So he sent me a letter and said, hey, be at Venice with your tools and ready to work January 2nd, 65. And so I was there. I worked most of 64 and most of 65. And that was my basically my time frame there at Shelby's. It must have been nice to finally be getting paid. Of course, back then, I imagine it was four bucks and change an hour, but... It was like two thirty-five. <laughs> Isn't that something? What a story. Strangely enough, you don't know exactly how things are going to go when you're in places like that. So I actually kept some of my pay stubs. So that's how I know the exact numbers, because I still have the pay stubs from working at Shelby's. We'll be back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Welcome back to Cars That Matter with Jim Arietta and Ted Sutton. You were working on some pretty exciting cars. I mean, you guys have talked about Mustangs, Cobras, Daytona Coupes, the Tigers, GT40s, I guess, were even kind of part of the mix occasionally. What was it about your roles that had you kind of bouncing around all these different projects? I know you were a mechanic. Ted Ted was also a crew mechanic and a fabricator. Is that right? You wear a few hats, huh? Definitely. That's how I got in is because I built a car that was a poor man's Cobra and brought it up to the shop and showed him. And Carol Shelby at the time said, could you make a kit for this so that I could sell? I said, absolutely. And I loved it. He says, that's what we're going to do. Well, of course, that never happened. Boy, a lot of guys back then were talking about putting small block V8s in. Oh, yeah. They're putting Chevys in them and stuff. But if the Ford was a perfect engine for it. And of course, they couldn't put it in anyhow. That was the reason that he told me that he was going to do, but we got so terribly busy. All these other projects just almost exploded. And we had all races to prepare for, testing to go to, and new equipment to come in on the line. You know, the King Cobra, all that stuff turned out to be pretty darn nice. And then Peter Brock's, when we finally got that on the road, that was a glorious thing. You're talking about the Daytona Coupe. Because nobody would believe there was an aircraft racer at one time that came in there who apparently was a friend of Shelby's. And he told him it wouldn't work. And of course it did. And Peter Crock, instead of being like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, all of a sudden became the new blossom in the company. He was grinning from ear to ear, and so was I, because I loved that car. It was the world champion in 1965 in the GT class, is that right? It ran in 64, but that's the one where they got it caught on fire because they spilled the gas over and it lit on a brake hub that was glowing red hot. But John Stuckey got burned pretty bad there. And so that's why I did not win in 64. But I went on to win in 65. That was just the beginning. 
beginning of the wins. So many things were happening at the time, and of course it was the Mustangs that got all the attention once that model was released. Well, that got attention, but the roadsters were getting themselves when they were coming over from England with no engines in. We put them in it. That's the first job I got to do was make those roadsters into racer roadsters. Bigger brakes, insulating the master cylinders so they don't get overheated by the exhaust, putting oil coolers on the differentials and making the caster and camber adjustments on the things that correct and just making it so that they were go out there and then we'd take them out to Riverside or Willow Springs. Jim was a part of this eventually and we'd run them and Ken Miles or Dave McDonald would assess them at the time and make sure that they would be on correct tune, that they would stand a race. And we'd check the tires. Sometimes when we really tested, we'd get Goodyear because Shelby was a Goodyear distributor by then. That's one of the things that helped him along. And he'll tell you that one of the things that made things work good for the Cobras is the fact that they quit putting those skinny tires on and they put the racing slicks on in the four corners. And that's what made them get around the corner really good. And that's the way Dave McDonald liked to do. He'd drive them around the racetrack sideways and people really liked that. That is fantastic. So the Cobras kicking ass and taking names. Meanwhile, Shelby gets an order to develop the Mustang into a race car, huh? That didn't come along until after I built the first 427 Cobra. Shelby always said he didn't want to build a 427 Cobra, but I got the job of doing it. Well, let's take a detour there for a minute, Ted, because I'm really interested in that 427 Cobra. There are guys that don't like them because they say they're too big and heavy and powerful, and the 289 was the sweet spot, but that was your project, huh? First of all, you have to understand that that's the only thing I had to put it in at the time, and we knew it would be lopsided as far as weight distribution, but they wanted to try out the engine, and the engine that they gave me. First of all, they gave me an engine. They said, you put this engine in it was a 427 single overhead cam engine. It was made out of wood. It was a dummy engine. And of course, you try and put a wood engine in with a metal transmission and all that, it would break. They just wanted to see if it would fit in there. And it was plenty obvious that it wouldn't fit in there properly. So eventually, they got a a real FE Ford 427 engine and and I put that in there and, and reinforced things so it would work. Then I, I was a crew chief on it at uh, Sebring on his first run. The engine was run, tested out there by Ken Miles. And he somehow, this thing's a little nose heavy, so he got a little behind in the steering and hit the only, the only tree on the airport course. Of course, you know how many trees they need on, need on airport courses, but he managed to tag one and he felt terrible about it. And then by that time, while we were fixing, we had a, we were there a week early. And while we were there early, Shelby managed to get a hold of John Holman and John Holman said, I want to put one of my engines in there. So in the meantime, I had to put another engine in supplied by John Holman. So that's the one that really went out there. And it eventually threw a route at about hour 10 or so. And John Morton was driving his very first race out there. It was a quite an illustrious event, but it was an experiment. And the regular 289s did quite well in the race. And there was a nasty accident out there where they hit an Italian driving an Italian race car and it was a big fire. And they had all the tanks underneath the stands. All the fuel tanks were in 500-gallon drums underneath the stands. And I thought that whole place, and that's where the pits were. And I thought that was the most dangerous thing in the world and why they never had a serious problem in the stands for 
that catching fire that had killed so many people so fast. I was glad when it was over because I felt I was in a very precarious place. And I didn't know how any race organizers would let that happen. I'm sure it wouldn't happen today. It was the wild, wild west back then. That's how some of these cars got bolted. And of course, the idea of putting a 427 in such a tiny car as that AC Cobra was a pretty bold cowboy move too. I mean, you get a crowbar and a pair of metal snips and I guess they give you a motor and say, go to town, huh? I mean, the front suspension was a cross leaf. I mean... Uh, early <laughs> That's right. uh, 49 Studebaker had that kind of suspension and just about had, you know, leaf spring going across rather than having coils or any kind of a arms or it was meant to hold a little inline six motor that probably didn't weigh more than a sewing machine. Yeah. That BMW six cylinder was a clever engine that they couldn't have. I think AC lost that because of war reparations after the Germans got their tail fanny kicked uh, that was a pretty clever little engine if you ever looked one over. I just loved that little motor that they had. But, well, Ford, when they first come out with the thin wall casting, they came out with a 221 made for that Ford Fairmont car. And then they bumped it up to 260. And when I got there, that's the engine that they would run. They'd, somebody had manufactured a manifold, put the 48 Webers, made it breathe good. And it was a pretty strong performer just as a 260. Well, I think they punched it out a little bit, but they never talk about that. Certainly by the time the 289 came around, it was time to build a series production car out of it. And I guess that's what Shelby was doing when he was making all the 562 some odd GT350s. But then it was up to you guys to actually turn it into a race car. To be quite frank about it, the earlier design proved that the rear upright hub wasn't quite strong enough. And Phil Remington, I don't know where he went or what he did, but he got it redesigned and made a difference. And so the rear suspension would stay together. It's there again, another cross leaf spring from right to left rather than fore and aft. And he got it to work right. He was one of those kind of guys that when he went to fix something, both arms were just flying and he just pounds something out. That's where he'd make something with a rock. If He he just was a very <laughs> clever man. He was God's gift to Carol Shelby as far as I'm concerned because this whole product that happened, it's a story that'll never be shown on television, but it was, I don't know how to explain it. It was just something that when it happened, it just seemed like all the stars were in correct alignment. People talk it that way. And I don't think any way to describe it any better than Carol Shelby had his lucky star shining down on him and he didn't have his heart working for him so he didn't drive and all he got to do was just use his position as a darn good race driver to help develop what became united states's best attempt at road racing we're going to take a short break but we'll be right back welcome to life done better Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Ted, tell them the story about Carol taking you for a ride in your first 427. That's one of my favorite stories. All I've heard are stories about the way Carol used to drive, so I imagine it must have been one heck of an e-ticket. One of the things they had to do 
when you put a racing roll bar in, it went behind the driver's seat and there was a gas tank back there. So he had to take the gas tank out and then you welded all the supports to it and put it back together and put the gas tank in. Well, naturally the gas tank was empty. So I got a little can of gas and put in it when I had that done. And then I wanted to go over there and put some more gas in it so I could test it out. And when I say go over there, it was a place called Carter Street where the production Cobras were being built and assembled in the warehouse. And so I went over to Carter Street and also the Goodyear thing. Paul Anfang was the head of that at the time. J.L. Henderson was there at the time as well. But I went over there, I got some gasoline put in it. And of course, I mean, what young snot-nosed kid wouldn't want to take and kind of goose a little bit around? <laughs> and there was a nice corner there and I could fly around there and smoking up the tires and just thrilled myself to death. But you see, we had been running the dyno late at night and there's a trailer court down the street. World War II stuff. This is a World War II area. For some reason, we'd lost some cams. People were sending the engines back and we put new camshafts in them. And when the camshaft was run, they'd have to run it up to a certain spec and see if it all held together and worked out correctly. So at any rate, I brought it back and there was, see, there was a note on the board that said, can't make any noise at night, nobody running the dyno and all that stuff, and we'll be subject to immediate dismissal. So when I drove back and parked it in front of the Princeton shop, there was a PA system said, Ted Sutton, please report to the office immediately. There's a bunch of cat calls that went out. It went, wow, you're the one they're going to make the scapegoat out of. And I thought I was. Unbeknownst to me, Shelby had a bad knee and had had some surgery and he was on a cane and he's up the top of the stairs and he came around there and he asked me if that was me out there driving that. And I said, yes, sir. And he looked at me real serious like, and then he says, well, how'd it go? <laughs> well, <laughs> just fine, sir. He said, let's see. So he hobbled down the step and said, do you want to ride along? I said, well, there's no seat in here. He says, well, you can sit on the floor, can't you? Because I had to take both seats out to do it. And he handed me his cane and proceeded to take me around that World War II place. Just as fast as the bloody world would let you go, stop signs down the streets. There wasn't any little kids going out there, but it was a weekday, so there could have been. And I thought, I'm going to get wrapped up in this little aluminum metal piece of crud. I'm going to be history in one of these things. But he drove it just as like he'd been driving it every day of his life, you know. And got back there and walked around and looked at it and kind of nodded, and I didn't make any comment. So then I had to finish the car because I didn't put any mufflers on it to do this. Well, I bet that made a nice racket, huh? That's just part (laughs) of the thrill. But anyhow... It wasn't too many weeks later, I was out driving it around Riverside because they decided they wanted to see how it would go at Sebring. So they kind of made the decision to try it out. What a great story. Thanks for sharing one that most people will have never heard. I consider this a secret piece of automotive history well, well, well worth sharing. Before we get lost in something else, I want to show you this picture. Can you see this picture? Okay, so we're doing this over Zoom, and indeed I can see a picture, and that looks like a rid-hard, put-away, wet Daytona coupe. What a beautiful thing thing. Guardsman blue with white stripes. It's out at the salt flats. But you see this little bronze plaque? Yes, indeed. I don't think this gets reported enough. I don't see it any place. This car that Peter Brock designed won all kinds of awards. And I'll try and read you what it says on it. says, National Historic Vehicle Register Number 1. And it says 64 Shelby Daytona Coupe. And this is 
2287 is the serial number on it. And that's the car that was sitting there. This is when we went to a specialty show. And see, this is HVA, Historic Vehicle Association. Isn't that interesting? And it's their number one car. United States Department of the Interior. That's what it says there. Historic American Engineering Record Number PA 650. Did you ever see anything like that or hear anything about the Daytona Coupe? Well, as a matter of fact, I have. And the reason I'm thrilled you bring this up, because we've had as our guest on the show, the director of the Historic Vehicle Association. In fact, we did a recent conversation with one of their sponsors, McKeel Haggerty, whose company has also put a lot of time and love and money into that. Probably the most significant group of automobiles in the world, because they are indeed a part of our historic national record. And the fact that the Daytona Coupe is number one speaks volumes about what a significant car it really is. That takes volumes for, for the Shelby organization. I'm just one of the people that was lucky enough to be able to work on it. I'm so proud of that. I'm thinking, you know, we look at all these old vintage vehicles, and some of those had some real special things about them. But this car was recognized for being special, and I truly think it deserved the award. And the Simeon Foundation has this car now. That's right. It's in good hands. Ted, you got a lot of pictures behind you, I see, on the Zoom call. Anything else you want to tell us about there? This is my son's office. This represents a lot of things that I've given him over the years, and he likes to put them up and display them because he's very proud of what. He's actually came out to Peter Brock's shop in Henderson and helped me with a little bit of the stuff just so he could be part of it. I, I could tell you a lot of stories. I can elaborate on a lot of things, like Ken Miles. When we tested he tested the IRS Falcon, an IRS Falcon out at Riverside. I took it out there because Jim wasn't even along at that particular point in time, and I took photos of it. But we were testing other cars. We took the King Cobra with Dave McDonald and Ken Miles testing it out. Quite frankly, Ken Miles liked the IRS cars, and only I assume that he Liked them because a lot of European cars, a little mm -hmm. triumphs. Some of those had independent rear suspension, certainly the Jaguar. Some of the other sedans and stuff that I don't even know about because I'm not an Englishman. But he tested it, and his heart was really set on the other car that was going to be running soon. And he was wanting to be a winner. The Falcon was never for sure going to be a car that would compete. And if mm -hmm. it was, it's going to be a long time away. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he put things in the proper perspective, I guess. I've had stories told to me about Ken when he was in World War II that I got to sit and listen to that I would love to tell you. And it has nothing to do with Cobras or anything like that, but just things that happened to him. I got to tell his son about it because his son, Jim, saw to it that he got to come to the shop. And his son's a very nice place. And he's had us at dinners where we've had Henry Ford III there, as well as other people like that. So it's very nice to just have been connected with all this. And there's no way that you can grab all this stuff at once and put it in a nice little package, or I think would take a great deal more time. Jim, Ted, and I still had so much more to talk about, so we'll pick up the conversation next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. 
and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.